You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there. This is kind of a special bonus uh, issue. I'm, you notice this is in my usual office. I'm down in Texas. Staying warm for the month, but uh, Michael Francese, Sonny Francese, Michael, that's the son. Uh, John, Sonny Francese, uh, died, and, and we thought we ought to make note of that. He was, he, he was the last man standing, wasn't he, Cam? I'm here with Cam, by the way. As he was. He, he, went, he, went, he went through, uh, through all of them, changed the uh, changing of the guard three different times in that uh, Profaci Colombo family, and he, he, outst- he out- outlasted them all. Uh, folks, that's Camulus Robinson, my uh, screenwriter, mob uh, researcher friend from up Chicago way, and, and I forgot to introduce you before that, you're not on every show, but uh, you're getting to be on more and more of them. You may be on every show one of these days. <laughs> Depending on how many I like, want to Hell, sit you down know, and I, You know, out. I like it. <laughs> Sometimes I like to sit down and knock You know, I, you know I enjoy really it. I really like having you help here. <laughs> All right, great. So, you know, he was born in 1917. He was, he was actually, my mother just died, who was 103, and he was, uh, he, she was born in 1915, so he was two years younger than her. But that, that's that old uh, generation, uh, you know, the, probably, he was probably the first, uh, first generation uh, over from Italy that was born in the United States. I'm pretty sure he was born here, and his family were from Naples. Oh, wait a minute, I see on the, uh, uh, my research here, he was born in Naples, so he was Neapolitan, which, so he wasn't Sicilian. Uh, did you know that? I, I didn't I didn't you know and it's and afterwards you can say well I looked how this guy lived or this guy lived and, and maybe he was Neapolitan but John, uh, Sonny Francis was such a played things so close to the cuff you know I, it, it's hard to see much of a difference but I didn't I didn't really know I did not know you, that you about made, him you made a statement to me earlier when we were talking about the uh, this guy and he was one of the first celebrity monsters uh, mobsters monsters he was one of the first celebrity mobsters yeah. that, that everybody kind of knew and he had this kind of reputation and as a, like a John Gotti type almost, although he wasn't uh, quite the same, but... Absolutely. I, I think he wasn't as, as foolish as John Gotti came to be about it, or, or, or later on uh, Joey Gallo, but at the time there were a lot of lot of celebrities who chose to, to go around Sonny, and, and I think he was obviously, obviously very smart, but it, that sort of attention from the outside world definitely brought law enforcement to his door and I think that he was was also one of the first that was he represented something to law enforcement and that led to a lot of and, and it led to a lot of extra attention whether it was warranted he was I know there's I know 30 to a 150 murders attributed to the guy and and I, I, I you know that's that's a really yeah. big number for a guy who's moving up through the ranks and obviously his son gives all these interviews and his son seems to have some doubts about that and you know, I can't imagine his son would be too forthcoming yeah. about it if he had. But it does seem like one of those. Well, we, he's the biggest target on the dartboard. We'll just we can just throw all the darts yeah, on well, him. Uh, and then in that I time, tell you, folks, you know, uh, that's how this works. There's only so many policemen, and there's only so many criminals to go around, and and there's only so many crimes, and there's more crimes and criminals than there are policemen. And, and especially in this upper echelon, you know, the you can't send out the, the district guy and the uniform guy, the beat cop, to go after a, a Sonny Francese or the the uh, Profaci family or the Genovese family or the Colombo family. You don't do that. 
you got to get a whole big crew. And, and during his earlier days, he was, you know, the FBI wasn't paying that much attention to him anyhow. So, uh, uh, you know, you pick a guy, you know, a guy that everybody, whose name is on everybody's lips, a guy that you see that's acting kind of flamboyant, kind of putting it out there in your face. You'll go after that guy, a guy that displays obvious signs of wealth. You know, you'll go, I'll tell you right now, we'll go after that guy first before we'll go after a guy who doesn't show all those things, although that other man may be making a lot more money. And it's kind of like Sonny Gravano had, was making all the money in the, God, with Gotti. Gotti got all the attention. <laughs> Gravano got caught up in it, but he was making millions of dollars right. in uh, construction companies and concrete business in Manhattan, kicking some to Gotti, but Gotti, he wasn't making that much money, just whatever, you know, people like Gravano would flip to him, but they focused on Gotti. So, uh, yeah. uh, you know, if you want to be yeah. a successful mobster, you know, dumb it down a little bit. Get you an older car. <laughs> Get you a cheaper suit. <laughs> this is coming from a guy who knows. You, uh, he, he came up, you know, your new, usual way, street gangs in the 20s and 30s and, and uh, uh, you know, Prohibition did all kinds of usual things and into the, uh, he actually... My research here tells me he became the underboss of the Colombo family in 1963. Uh, but he, en- he ended up, yeah. he, he masterminded yeah, and then, a series of bank robberies, which boy, back then they did a lot more bank robberies than they do today. There's, they kept a lot more money in some of these banks, I think, cash yeah. money. And, and he ended up getting 50 years back then. He, and he spent, I think he spent about eight or nine years in the joint and got paroled in 78. So that's when he really came into his own. Uh, he, 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 I think that's when he actually became the underboss of the Colombo family on up. In right, that right. Time. Uh, he was he he was a, uh, hung out in Times Square, uh, got involved in the porn business. Uh, I understand he was one of the financiers for helped arrange financing for uh, Linda Lovelace's Deep Throat. And, and that that movie made millions. I don't know how that deal worked. That'd be an interesting whole research project in its own, wouldn't it? I, yeah, that would be something to put. Yeah, that would be how did the something to put together. Yeah, because everybody was but, taking a chance, and and you know who knows? You know that's one of those lightning strikes things that that thing hit so big and make out made all those millions of dollars. And probably three or four movies mm-hmm. out there just like it that might even been a little bit better, but that one hit for some reason. Uh, yeah, yeah, I. I think what's funny, whenever you think about those old school guys who were running with the Rat Pack and who were, you know, at the Copa, who were going around, and, and, and Sonny would be one of those kind of mobsters of the time, the guys who were really lit up and who, who were really seen. When we think of, when a lot of people glamorize what the heydays of, of, of being a gangster meant back in the 50s, basically, what, what the, exactly what you just described, the guy who wants all the attention is wearing the expensive, uh, uh, suit. That's that's who who uh, Sonny was back in. And if you look up, you can see pictures of him with with all all manner of uh, famous people from the fifties and the forties. Oh, oh yeah. like he was a big boxing fan, so he buddied up to Rocky Graziano. Mm-hmm. And a lot of you guys are younger than me, but I'll tell you what: in, in the fifties, Rocky Graziano was the man. We all knew that. You know, like you knew Mickey Mantle. You knew Rocky Graziano. He was the man, and 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 he got his picture taken with Rocky Graziano and and, and stuff like that. So I mean, you know, you're, all the cops knew Rocky Graziano, and they knew who, and the FBI agents, and they knew who uh, uh, 
Sonny Francese. What Francese? Yeah, my, you know, my 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 family's people up in up in the Bronx have 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 Graziano yeah. stories. So I mean, that's he was the, an Italian oh my God, icon yeah, back then. He was icon for for all the white boys throughout the whole. He was a he was a great white yeah, hope. Yeah, you right. Know, they used to absolutely called. Uh, 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 he was the last great white hope, and you know, I I, I, I don't want to sound prejudiced, but that's just the way it was back then. You had uh, going all the way back to was a gentleman, uh, 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 well, Jack Johnson, gentleman, ja- gentleman, uh, gentleman, and, yeah, and Jack Johnson, another yeah. right there, and, and and then you had this black man who was going out with white women, and and he won the heavyweight championship of the world, and that's when the term great white hope came along, and. And finally, there, you know, during the war, uh, maybe a little bit before and during the war, and in the 50s, Rocky Graziano became the man until, and, and, and he held it until, I think, and probably until Sonny yeah. Liston came along, I would imagine. I'm not that big of a boxing fan. There'll probably be somebody out there to correct me on that, but. Uh, but he held it for quite a while. That's when when you see guys like Graziano and Graziano and Rocky Marciano, oh, and, yeah, and Rocky they get Marciano, in, yeah. in, in Dempsey. Yeah. And Dempsey, they get a lot, lot played up again about them, like you said, because there was sort of that, sort of that innate desire of of, of certain people to see our yeah. our kind. When you've got right. guys like Joe Lewis mopping the floor with right. everybody, right? Oh yeah, and Joe Lewis too. So it's always been that kind of black white thing. I'm glad you brought that up, but, but and it seemed like it was more like black Italian as you think about it. And and Italian folks, I mean, they you know yeah. that's you know, that's a lot of their pride is you've got an Italian man's a heavyweight champion in the United States. Uh, and not and not just some hey, officer. They're hauling off to jail. So that's uh, uh, as a people, you can hit us in the head with a lot of things, Gary. We're pretty good at that. Yeah, there you go. Even got into the uh, record business. <laughs> right. What Buddha Records was? It was Buddha Record Company, and and uh, they were laundering money for the. And and payola that was back, and I remember this in the in the late fifties and all through the sixties, they'd pay off these disc jockeys to get hits on way on up in in the standings. Yeah, you, you, the only way to make music back then would be would be playing it on yeah. the radio or playing it in the yeah. jukeboxes. So you either owned a D, you either owned a DJ on the radio or you owned a jukebox company. And and Chicago, I think there were I can't remember if there were between Chicago and and Cleveland there were. Maybe fifteen jukebox yeah. companies, and the mob owned all of them. So that was how they they pushed all of their all of their stars with MCA that was yeah. owned by the mob. And if you didn't have access to that, then the rest of Cleveland and East had uh, had payola, and they were getting them on the radio by owning DJs. So with uh, with his name, oh, I can't remember Alan his name, uh, Alvin uh, Alan Freed. Yeah. So that was that was how you made. Your stars back then, and why why stars buddied up to the mob because they owned the jukebox companies, they owned the radios, they owned they the knew, DJs. They knew, they and, knew and the only way to get made. So they, they knew how to get their way with right, individuals right. like that. So it was a kind of a marriage made in heaven, wasn't it? Interesting. Right. They're also the bookmakers <laughs> yeah, to the yeah. stars. <laughs> so he got he got involved in a, in a mob head and this uh, bank robbery. Set up a bunch of bank robberies and. Sixties and ended up getting this fifty years in the penitentiary. Actually, he was, was up here at Leavenworth, looks like, for quite a while, and uh, uh, right outside of Kansas City. He'll end up uh, yeah, later was... on in, in his career. He'll end up with a little Kansas City connection. I'll talk about that later. Um, but he, you know, he comes back out and he and 
and he does okay when he comes back out. He's, you know, he, he's now becoming one of the senior citizens in the mob. Uh, I know that he, he, uh, he was, I read an interview with his son, John Francis, not too long ago, and, uh, uh, who was a recovering addict, but he and Michael both talk about growing up in this household where their father was engendering all this, all this attention and, uh, how they were, they knew that they were known people and, and especially during the Italian American Civil Rights League, um, they were, all the Colombo children were big yeah. parts of that. So he, uh, uh as he was conducting mob business here in in the Colombo family, they were going through some changes. There was a he ends up back in the penitentiary for a murder. That was for the. I think that was the only uh, the only murder they ever attributed to him. They only charged him with, but he was there were, like I said, thirty or forty that they they claimed he had a part of, or he did, or he 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 sent guys to you know with these mob murders. It doesn't matter if you make the call or if you pull the trigger if you distract the guy but um again michael his son disputes that and probably rightly rightly so for the reasons yeah, we discussed and other things he was he was involved in back in the you know late 90s uh, early 2000s and he was kind of involved in everything one thing he, he ended up had a connection here to kansas city was he got involved in a uh, telephone cramming telephone bill cramming operation back in the, when they first start, broke up the Southwestern Bell and had all these different little regional bells and baby bells, they called them, and other telephone companies started popping up and you could form another telephone company and 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 they had those 900 numbers and, and you remember the scams where you'd like get the, you'd get somebody to get you to call a nine, one 900 number, lots of times they were like porn lines, and then the person would get like a, a $500 right. bill on their, uh, on their uh, or $500 charge on their bill and the telephone company it, it wasn't didn't go to them it went to this third-party company but it wasn't anything they could do anything about uh, other and you had to complain and lots of times it was some kind of a porn line and so people were embarrassed and 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 that that was kind of the the new mob as they have tried to make their transition from you know they made it from bootlegging to to sports gambling and and casino gambling and and now they're making it more into internet and, and uh, more sophisticated white collar crimes. And that was one of their early entries. And he got caught up in that. We had a, a little telephone company out here in suburban Kansas City. I think a little town called Belton that the owner of it was indicted. And, and I believe he was indicted with, uh, with that operation. He, had, he was involved in a bunch of other stuff at the same time. I mean, this guy was a real mobster. He, he had crews going out, stealing fur coats and and doing home invasions people pretending like they're police officers doing home invasions in los angeles and i mean he was all over the united states back back in those days finally put together a big case this last one with uh several uh colombo mobsters and you know the usual you know this is after by 2000 they have got the the uh, rico statute down and the use of wiretaps and and these guys are involved in all these different crimes, so they charge them with racketeering and conspiracy and robbery and extortion. I mean, they, they just see two guys together, and all of a sudden they're in a conspiracy. I kind of understand their, yeah. their complaint sometimes. You see two Italians together, it must be the mafia. Yeah, and, right. And that's often you know part of it. I mean, I used to do that. You drive around and just see somebody like Michael Francese talking to another guy. And then if that other guy came into the any kind of a conspiracy later on, then you just put him into it and say he was part of it. If you could get you a storyteller eventually, why? All he had to do was say, "Oh yeah, he was a boss. He he got a piece of the action. Why he was going down just like you were." 
as a guy that actually was doing whatever he was doing, selling narcotics or doing a, a robbery cruise or whatever, loan sharking. It was there. Were, that 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 Rico definitely changed the rules, and whether it whether it changed them always legitimately or not is uh, is a matter. For for uh, discussion, it definitely, definitely achieved its goal, uh, Blakey, Blakey's goal of, of getting mobsters yes, off the street. But I don't now whether his goal was to do so in the most constitutionally, uh, <laughs> constitutionally feasible means possible. I don't know, Imagine, if, you know but I think that was a secondary was goal. Pretty righteous, but I think when you put it in the hands of a real, uh, slightly unscrupulous and very zealous prosecutor and a squad of FBI agents, then they might, you know, they might take it a little bit too far. Now, I don't know if they did or they didn't. It's hard, you know, when you're in that situation, you know, I was on the side that we might take it a little bit too far and never had any problem with that. Now, you know, I've, I've flipped over to the other side and, and uh, uh, never really defended anybody, but being a lawyer, I know a lot about it and I know how prosecutors and, and overzealous agents and police officers can take things just a little bit too far and, and to, to convince a jury, uh, you know, everybody gets painted with that tar brush whenever they're sitting there as a defendant anyhow. And you got these nice, clean, young, educated men saying that you're a criminal and, and, uh, then they, then, they, then they let some guy out of 25 murders in order to go in and verify that you're a criminal. And, so it's, uh, you know, it, it's not an easy way to... to That's an interesting to, perspective. To do that. I mean, you, and, and you can look at it either way, so I, I don't know. But it's all kind of changing now anyhow. And now we just go after terrorists and, and uh, Mexican and Colombian drug dealers and drug cartel yeah. members, and, and, and they're That's evil right. enough for us. So we got to have an evil... We have to have an evil person to go after. Back then, Francisa was, but, you know, in hindsight, he doesn't seem so evil. That's right. <laughs> no, no. But he was, but, when he was convicted, you know, he was 93 time, years was a... old. And, and, you know, this is when uh, his, his son, John Francisa Jr., actually wore a wire, just like yeah. uh, Frank uh, Calabrese Jr. did on his father. He wore a wire on his father and testified against him in uh, yeah, that's right. court. And supposedly... They put a contract out on him now. I don't know. You know, that's kind of a dysfunctional. He's family. he's been he's in hiding. He's in hiding now somewhere south of uh, somewhere around Indianapolis. Yeah. I read an interview with him not too and long actually, ago. I, I got a little personal connection to that I had a guy, uh, a horror filmmaker out of Chicago, named John Borowski. I kind of know, but not real well. But he knows that what I do, and I know what he does. And we once went to a, um, a dark history uh, convention and had booths, and I kind of got to know him there. And I'd call him once in a while and ask him for tips on, you know, making and selling documentaries, and he'd do the same thing to me. And and he got hold of me, and he said he had somebody reach out to him from this John Jr., and they wanted somebody to do a documentary about John Francis A. Jr., but they wanted, I think he said they wanted $36,000 as a cash payment up front before they started doing anything. So I, said, I told him, I said, you know, it doesn't surprise me. Most guys, they want some money for their story, which I don't blame them. But it's, I said, I sure, said you know, sure. for me, it, it's such a crapshoot that to do one of these documentaries, you know, if you're going to pay a guy like that $36,000, 
you better have the other 75 to 100 or more thousand dollars to put in it to have the production values to maybe break even on it. And, and, uh, and yeah. it's just, that's it's a tough one there. So I, I said, I'll have to pass. And I've noticed I've never heard any more out of that deal where anybody else's, and I, I'm sure they've shopped it around all over the place. Matter of fact, probably already shopped at a bunch well, of big companies like the National Geographic Channel or somebody like that. Discovery Channel before they got down to a guy like John or me. And you can see you've seen the like, you know, now that we've a few some time has passed and we've seen that John Francis documentary come out. It obviously had a lot of yeah. interest. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, judging by the fact it got made. Yeah. Not at all. Uh, I think he did. There was an interview out there. His, of course, his brother, Michael, he's all over the place. He did a musical. Oh, and, yeah. And he never really, I don't know if it ever opened in Vegas or not. He, you know, and, and one of his big crimes there at the end, he may have a lot of personal money. Because I'd researched him before, when I, and I ended up by accident. He was involved in this uh, tax gas tax scam back in New York City. That yeah, was a he, lot, a lot of money. You know, you remember the, the deal on how that worked? Yeah, basically, they had a bunch of shell gas stations. They would set up, they would collect, they would, they would set up the gas station, they would charge significantly less than all the surrounding, they would collect all the tax. Let's say, you know, uh, Joe's gas station down the street or Vinny's gas station is charging five bucks a gallon up there in New Jersey. Plus, you gotta, you gotta, you can't pump your own gas in New Jersey. So they'd set up and they'd charge three dollars for the gas because they were getting the gas basically for free. And then they would, they would charge the tax. And then they would shut down the gas. They would close down the gas company, never pay the tax. And then they'd pop up, and there were a hundred shell corporations. So they had, you know, a hundred different different. Uh, they were they were selling gas to everybody in the area. They were they were selling gas at at, uh, at reduced rates, and they were collecting all the tax. And then they were shutting down these shell companies. It was basically just a shell corporation game, and they were selling gas at reduced rates to get. So, you know, to, to close the market on all their competitors, and then they were uh, they were not paying tax to the government. So the, really, the the it was only the government that was getting ripped off by the by the millions of dollars of, of in tax revenue. Uh, that's that's sort of a really quick and dirty way of looking at, at that scam. But it was a, it was a, it was the tax money on this gas that they were selling. Uh, they were they were. They were buying gas, selling it, and not collecting the sales tax and giving it to the government. And then by the time anybody tracked them down, which is, I think, you know, the, the tax due every year, they had closed down the company and been out. And, and there was some sort of loophole where if your business – I can't remember the loophole exactly. My family's up in New Jersey, and they explained it one time. But if, if it's something about if you close down within the first year or something, the taxes – some some kind of taxes going to arrears. I can't remember the the nature of the loophole which they were exploiting, but they ended up with hundreds and hundreds of shell companies, uh, and the taxes for those companies were never paid to the government. So everybody was getting gasoline. Everybody was paying for it at a reduced rate, and the government, as far as the government was concerned, they were just observing this loophole and that they were going out of business within a year and, and so paying reduced taxes or what, whatever the nature of it was, it was basically by the each individual rule legit, but as a cumulative action, it was, it was 
pretty bad, and they were, I mean, you're talking hundreds That's of millions of dollars. And I think the, the Russian, there was a Russian mobster involved in it, and, and there was another uh, a yeah. Gambino family, yes. uh, I can't remember who it was, was involved in it, so... Um, it was a it was a gas gas, gas, gas pipe queso. Yeah, I, I, I knew that, and and so there was a lot of money that was being made. You know, here's an interesting little thing I just saw about uh, when he was in the penitentiary. He's been in for quite a while. This is back in the uh, oh, 2006. They the bureau must have wired up a guy and ran him in on him for for whatever reason. Hell, the guy had to be 90 some years old then. A guy named Gaetano Fatado. Guy, they called him Guy Fatado, right? And they wired him up, and and they got here's some snippets from this conversation where uh, Francese has given a little uh, a workshop on mob murder, how to murder somebody. He says I killed a lot of guys. <laughs> You're not talking about four, five, six, or ten. So I don't know how many men. He, he told Fatado, he said he always oh, put maybe I underestimated really put nail polish on his fingertips before a murder, so he wouldn't leave fingerprints, but didn't wear gloves. Now, that's pretty smart. Uh, yeah, you walk out wearing gloves, and somebody is more likely to notice you, and unless it's you know super cold in the winter. Uh, it, Shit, I've been wearing gloves on all my <laughs> yeah. murders. I better, I can stop that. He just that kills now. people in the winter. <laughs> He, he, he said you need to wear, wear a hairnet so you won't leave any hair at the scene for the DNA. I mean, he was he was getting down to it. He, he said his he yeah he, he liked to dismember corpses, and you know I I learned a term when I'm doing doing when I was doing that research for the Pizza Connection about the uh, Sicilian mob mob families. Oh, Tommaso Tommaso Bruschetta right. used a term when his. Sons were killed. They never found their bodies, and he said that was a Lupara Blanca, which means a white shotgun, or that that's that's when, when white you never shot, find yeah. the body. It's it's a Lupara Blanca, Blanca. yeah, yeah. And he said if you're gonna get rid of the body, he he'd always dismember the corpse in a kiddie pool, and then dry each body part in a microwave oven, and then run the body parts through a commercial grade garbage disposal. So no wonder we can't find Jimmy Hoffa. Jesus, <laughs> that's right. That takes a lot of time. He that, said it takes about a half an hour, but uh, but it takes longer than a half. Practice an hour. makes perfect, know, Gary. Pra practice yeah, makes no, perfect. Yeah. Even just to get all the different little parts uh, microwave dry enough to and run it through. Uh, I don't know. I've never. I guess I've never seen a um, commercial size uh, food grinder, a uh, disposal. They're probably probably big enough no. to take an arm leg. I guess must be huh? crazy. He was a bad dude. <laughs> <laughs> so I was I was making a comment online about her. I, I put up. I reposted on my Facebook page. Something about him dying, you know, I just put stuff up like that. So fans and maybe them, sometimes that's like the only mob news they see and I get different feeds of it. Right. So I put it up on my Facebook page and and Gangland Wire and, and this friend of mine from up in Chicago, Ben Ellickson, he said, well, I wonder if he's going to charge this usual $3,200 uh, fee for uh, giving a talk when he does a eulogy for his dad. <laughs> 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 I said, yeah, he probably will. <laughs> oh, That's better than the other kid. He won $36,000 to do a movie. <laughs> and it did give about 10 interviews or so. <laughs> give about an hour's worth of interviews. I'm going to give the eulogy online. 
That's what he'll do. Mike, uh, when I took that uh, Calabrese tour, he said he did some prison. He did some time, I guess, when uh, uh, Sonny Francis was on one of his oh, parole yeah. violations, and uh, Francis comes up to uh, Frank Calabrese Sr. And I guess it was Sonny. The way the way Frank Jr. tells it is Sonny Francis and Raymond Patriarca Jr. were walking, and they said to Frank Calabrese Sr., they said, you know, your son's doing good time. And I guess that comment kind of angered Frank Calabrese Sr. He said, well, I'm doing good time, too. What do you mean he's doing good time? He ain't the only one doing doing good time. Man. I mean, shit, that's, that's your damn dad, really, man. What a jerk, man. <laughs> Speaking of that, I want to end with this. Um, Cam, I'm, I've talked to Mike Byrne with the um, Chicago Old and New News Articles Facebook page, which is real active. Hell of a good site on Red Facebook, man. yeah. I don't think I can get Red to come, but Frank Calabrese Jr. And uh, I'll talk to Ben Ellickson here pretty quickly. And, uh, and there's uh, Michael McCollum, who used to be a Hells Angels, is working on a book. And, and he was connected to the outfit in and, and, and kind of a periphery manner. I, I can't remember yeah. exactly what it was now. I mean, he's working on a book. So they all said it would be good if I wanted to come up there and, and get you to come on into Chicago. And I think maybe there's an Italian restaurant that Frank's got uh, either a piece of or he used to and his friend owns it. And Mike Byrne from the uh, Facebook page uh, group, uh, Chicago Outfit, said that they did this a couple years ago and, and just started announcing around that we'd all be there at a particular time and, you know, maybe eat some food or just have some drinks. And, and I wouldn't mind maybe uh, working a deal where we'd, uh, we'd go with, uh, with Frank on, a bunch of people would go with Frank on the tour after we met up there. But uh, th that would be, you know, yeah. got to work out those details. So, uh, do you, are you going to be gone in an extended period of time in, in June? I'm thinking June or 1st of July. But, of course, we'd have to leave out the 4th. But No. No, man. I'd, I'll, I'll okay. be around. I would, I would, uh, I would love right, to be great. a part of it, man. I'd, I'd love, to, to, love to get hold of Ben Ellison and I'll do that to later today or tomorrow and make sure he's going to be around all of June and... And I know I am going to be, and uh, I'll ride my motorcycle up. And 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 Mike McCollum, he's he's a biker. He's still got a motorcycle himself. He's former Hell's Angel. That'll be cool for me, riding with the former Hell's Angels. <laughs> but we'll go around to some some mob sites, and and I'll do some YouTube videos and say this is what happened here, and throw them up on the YouTube page, and and uh, um, and and maybe I don't know if I can do a show. You know, kind of a live show at that restaurant. It might be uh, more trouble than it's worth, but uh, 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 but we'll do something and and meet some of the fans in Chicago. You know, I have I have most of the time I have more downloads from Chicago than I do from Kansas City, which is quite amazing. For a long time, it was more from Kansas City than anywhere, but now it's more from Chicago. Slightly more, not many, but slightly more from Chicago than Kansas City. Yeah, there's for a long time you just there was no source of of information. You came along, and I mean there was the movie Casino, but but then you started doing yeah. your stories, Gary, and that was what what turned what turned me on to you. I mean you you just you're the source of uh, these hard to find know, stories out there. What, I've I've looked all through for other stories for inspiration from other people, and uh, the only thing close it, it just tells kind of a generic overview of the most famous guys, and, and, and that's it. They yeah. never tell the individual stories of things that, that I like to do and try to find people that were either involved or investigated things and 
and or use you know, kind of the 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 not the, the everyday stories that everybody knows. You know, everybody's heard a lot of those stories there, but I like to tell those stories that uh, that a lot of people don't even know about because there's a jillion of them. Absolutely. I'm gonna wind this down now. You know, I think I'm gonna change my. Uh, uh, this is kind of a bonus episode. Everything's kind of all off on it today. Anyhow, uh, I think I'm going to change my uh, uh, service announcement. I like doing a public service announcement. I've been doing that for alcohol and drug recovery for a long time. And But I, I was talking to a guy who, one of the fans from the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and he's uh, spent some time in um, Kandahar in Afghanistan and, and uh, not Kabul, but also in, uh, I think, Mosul. But uh, anyhow, he, he when he came back, he was, of course, like a lot of them, affected by PTSD, and, and he's ended up doing a lot of work in the field of PTSD. So I think I'm going to start. There's a there's a uh, hotline phone number, I think, with the VA out there, and, and start talking, doing a little thing on uh, PTSD. We, we were talking about, like, this people like uh, uh, Roy DeMeo and, and his crew, now, now, how do you find yeah. all these people that can do all that murder? Now, a lot of people, they think it's fun to talk about killing somebody. They think that's cool, but they ain't never done it. And, and, it's, uh, and as he said, they told me in, in the military, you know, sitting out there from a distance, you know, popping a gun at somebody, you may see somebody fall or you may not. You don't know if you've ever killed anybody, but when you're going to get up close like we've, we're going to have to do in these cities, and you kill somebody, and you see them go down, and they're right there in front of you. He said, that's a different deal. And he said, that'll never leave you. And, and, and I never did it, but I've seen guys that did, and, and it's true. It, 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 it has an irrevocable effect on anybody. And so, you know, we talk about this stuff, but all these guys in the military have done that or been part of that and come back, and, and they got this PTSD. And first of all, you know, I think I have to wonder about these some of these guys like Roy DeMeo and, and what was it, Center and, and uh, uh, Tesla? Was that not Tesla? Uh, yeah, Anthony, yeah, Center Testa, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, Tester. The, the Gemini Center twins. Center and Testa, the Gemini and, twins. Uh, that other guy, yeah. the one they called Dracula, lived upstairs. I think they used his bathtub to let the blood drain out into. I mean, they got to see this shit up close and personal all the time. Maybe even acted like they liked it. I don't know. So you just have to wonder. You know, you know that came from a some abused background, some horribly abused childhood that that would get a person to where they could they could do that. And and uh, you know, we talk about a lot of a lot of people in action, a lot a lot of people in PTSD turn to alcoholism and drugs to try to uh, avoid that pain. A lot of people in the police department turn to alcohol, primarily alcohol, because you can't do drugs, and but in order to avoid the pain of of a lot of things in your life, and and so I just think maybe I'll get that um, get that hotline and start announcing. Yeah, I, I, I think that's worthwhile, Gary. About PTSD because it kind of fits in a lot of these mob guys. You know, they they're just victims of abused childhood, and they get that's the best way they know how to deal with their PTSD is is go out and hurt other people. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think Tommy uh, Patera had a rough un, uh, uh, upcoming. Uh, Tommy yeah, Karate yeah. Patera, and he was uh, he was a well, look at look at he Frank Calabrese Jr. The kind of dad he had. You just gave a perfect yeah. example of that. Exactly. And and these Francese boys, both of them. You can imagine what that must have been like growing up in that family. And, 
Ab absolutely. All right. Well, I, I appreciate it, Cam. And uh, don't forget, folks, hit me up on the Venmo app. Buy me a cup of coffee and shot in a beer. And uh, on Venmo, it's Jinx Law. Or I've got my movie, Brothers Against Brothers, the most recent movie, Brothers Against Brothers, on Amazon Prime. It's only $1.99. Just make sure you go to the other purchase options to get the $1.99 price. Uh, otherwise, they want $2.99. And Gangland Wire is the same thing. We get a little piece of that action. You help support the podcast and, and get something back for it. Um, Francis Land. Francis Land, I appreciate what you've done here recently. I'm going to get you something else. Um, he hit me up on Venmo again pretty good. And then I've got uh, Rick Jones that hits me up every month and... and uh, Rich Sullivan hits me up every month on uh, on the Venmo, or I think that was on PayPal. That's back when I used to have a uh, way to subscribe on PayPal. So I appreciate all the support and all the other emails. I'm I'm looking up a couple of stories from uh, uh, from a guy down in Australia. Lee Fisher uh, pointed out a couple of guys that are on this BBC um, history of the mob documentary. A guy named uh, uh, Cataluno and a guy named Dinono, and, and they both have they're minor mobsters, but they were gave a lot of evidence and and just somehow missed out on you know getting any getting any notoriety at all and uh, went in the witness protection program and and uh, oh Joey yeah, Cantalupo, yeah, you say Cantalupo? Oh, man, you know what? This week I was just going to say, Gary, we should look yeah. up Joey Canlupo literally three oh, really? days ago. I, I'll send okay. you some, I'll send right. you some interviews good. with Joey Canlupo. I, I did Canlupo. a little bit this morning just putzing around with it. I thought I think I'll put this together because these are those out-of-the-way stories, and, and they, were, I, they were these storytellers on uh, uh, the, uh, this BBC. It was really a good multi-episode series on the mob. Jimmy Fradiano was the other one, and... and uh, yeah, yeah, on, on the YouTube, YouTube yeah. old series. And, and it's a really good series. It got Bill Romer, the FBI agent that, that all the mob guys in Chicago hated so much. That, and, and, and a lot of mob fans call it said he's a big fat liar, but he wrote several books. He's actually the one that this uh, uh, Jerry DiNono, uh, he developed him as an informant, and the guy killed like three people. And But he did do some testifying for Romer. Romer's the one that got him where he could uh, did that documentary and he was in the penitentiary for life when he did the documentary but they made it look like he he was out they made it look like he was the way they set the camera and they put him in civilian clothes so uh, and, and, and he he's kind of I'm a gonna, scumbag uh, <laughs> little killer dude but uh, but he was connected to the outfit i've got a, a real good nicholas pelleggi uh 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 one of his old interviews oh, from New York, uh, for the New Yorker magazine oh, on Cantaloupe. Yeah, you know, I'll send you. I saw that was in there, and on my, I couldn't get it blown up enough on my phone to see it. On, I'm kind of cramped on what I can do. No, no, on yeah, Google Books, yeah. I couldn't yeah. get it, so, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, I, I knew that would be a good one. All right, that'll be great. All right, Cam, it was good to talk to you, and uh, Wiretappers, it's, uh, uh, we'll kind of be, I've been on vacation all month, and I may be a little bit rocky starting out. I think I've got one for next Monday, but I may not. <laughs> I'm going to try to uh, <laughs> edit this real quick and throw it out there today so we can get it out quick. Good night, Cam. Hi, Gary. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey. 
All right, I'll send you these. Uh, there's a, uh, about 27 minutes worth of direct interviews with Cantalupo, and just listen to the guy talk. Okay, great. Just listen to him talk. It's yeah. just incredible. Oh, so. oh yeah. Okay, cool. I can probably snag a few little snippets out of that. As a kid that I'd known growing up, and, and I've been, I, I have been, uh, 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 people up in my hometown have heard me talk. And so they didn't have anybody for this guy to do the eulogy. He had been away from town, and, and uh, you know, a lot of people knew the family, but nobody really knew him very well. But I had grown up with him, so I, I said, they called me up and said, would you give the eulogy for him? And I said, well, sure, I'd be happy to. And I was going to go to the funeral anyhow, because we'd been really close when we were like six, seven years old. And, and when I got all done, we're leaving, and... The guy's uh, his sister-in-law walked up to me and handed me an envelope, and I just figured it was a thank you card. So I get out in the car and start heading home. And I open, or I get home actually, open up the envelope, and there's fifty bucks in there with a thank you note. So <laughs> 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 I felt kind of like cheap, but you know what are you going to do now? I'm not going to run around and find them and give the money back. It's, uh, <laughs> At least you, at least you know what, at least you know what uh, ten minutes of time is worth. Yeah, good point there, <laughs> <laughs> folks. You hear that? That's what ten minutes of my time's worth. Fifty bucks. <laughs> this podcast is going to get a little bit high for you after today. After Cam told me what I'm worth. <laughs> At least in, in Kansas, oh, Kansas City, City dollars, dollars, that's what okay. it is. <laughs> no, this is actually Plattsburgh dollars, the small town where I came from. <laughs> oh, shit, it's a different yeah. exchange rate then. And I wouldn't laugh about this, but that guy was a good guy. and He'd understand that. He'd think it was a funny story himself. <laughs> he was the kind of guy that when you were growing up, he was the Fonz. I told him this once after we were adults, and I didn't really sign much after we were adults. I said, when we were kids, you were the Fonz, man. If you smoke pell mells, we smoke pell mells. If you change the Winstons, we change the Winstons. If you drank Slitz beer, we drank Slitz beer. If you wanted a Chevy car, we wanted a Chevy car. So, <laughs> one of those kinds of guys. We've all known them. Huh.